Hello and welcome to Paranormal or What podcast with me, your host, Michaela Ford. How are you all paranormal peeps? Has it been a good paranormal week? I've just been watching the real telling of The Conjuring on the television. And I tell you what, it's really scared me. Ooh, although I would kind of like to visit that house one day, just to see what the vibes are like. So, on horror theme this week, we have horror screenwriter Danny King to talk to us about the ins and outs of horror screenwriting for films. So, take it away, Danny. Hello and welcome to Paranormal or What podcast with me, your host, Michaela Ford. And tonight we have a treat for you because we have author Danny King to talk to us. Hi, Danny. How are you doing? Hello. Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Good. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, Now, I'm just going to dive straight into the questions. And I'm sorry if it's the sort of questions that people normally ask you. But um, obviously, it's all new to me. Yeah. Although I have done some very interesting research on you. So let's see what happens. So um, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your early life? You can have the potted version or the lengthy version. It's up to you. Uh, well, very, uh, I'll do the potted version. I, I was born in, uh, born in Slough uh, on, a, on um, a council estate in 1969. Um, lived in a little two-bedroom terrace, you know, it's just a red brick, you know, council estate, um, you know, ran around the streets with all the other kids doing what other kids do and playing, you know, climbing on garage roofs and running in and out of each other's houses and playing football and that sort of stuff. Um, the thing I, I really liked in the 70s was um, uh, it was collecting those Hammer Horror trading cards. I don't know if you remember they they were called Shock Theatre. They um, Oh no, I don't remember those. Then yeah, oh, they they were just they came out about 1976. I guess Hammer was trying to make a uh, you know, they'd exhausted every other avenue. So they got into trading cards and they you got three cards and a stick of gum uh, <laughs> uh, in a pack uh, for about, you know, 12p or whatever and they'd have a they'd have a picture of Christopher Lee or Peter Cushion or 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 someone on the front of them with with an awful pun. And I've, I've, I've since looked at these cards that I was collecting when I was eight years old, and they're like they're like Carolyn Monroe with her throat cut out, you know, and and, and blood <laughs> everywhere and all that. So I'm think, trying to think, you know, that that's the sort of thing I was doing when I was that age. Oh wow! Um, I think I was into football cards at that time because I was a bit of a tomboy, and. Um... I wish I'd been into the horror cards instead. It sounds a lot more exciting. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, all the other lads were into the Panini cards, but I like the I like the horror trading cards. <laughs> Do you know what? I look back on those days and um, I think to myself, "Oh, I'm going to show my children um, this film because it was amazing." And and I watched that when I was ten, and and I'm going to show them this. And I know I'm sure I must have only been about twelve when I watched this. And then you watch these old films back, and you go. Oh my goodness, I forgot about that bit. Yeah. <laughs> and there's always some awful sex scene or something that you'd forgotten about. Well, what, one of the things I was surprised at is because uh, I, I I got into horror films because I, I, I loved watching, they used to have on BBC Two on a Saturday night in the autumn, the double bill of horror. 
So you'd start, uh, you know, early, well, not early, but it, it would start with like an old black and white film, like from Universal, you know, House of Dracula or House of Frankenstein or something. And then after that, they'd move on to a colour, usually a hammer or, a, a, you know, one of those Amicus films. Um, and I looked up and the very first, the very first films I watched were the, the double bill was Bride of Frankenstein and Brides of Dracula. It was on a double yeah. bill. And thanks to the internet, you can, you know, you can look it up these days and see exactly when that was broadcast. And that was broadcast in, um, I think, 1977 or something like that. Um, and the first film didn't start till 10.30 and the second film started at midnight. And I would have been eight years old. My <laughs> mum's letting me stay up at midnight to watch this film. I'd never do that with my kids. Yeah, what was she thinking? Well, what terrible parent. Oh no, I used to watch the Hammer House of Horror ones, and I'm sure they didn't start till about 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, um, right. And I used to find, because I was an only child, I found that my mum and dad were so focused on the television that if I sat really quietly in my chair, they'd sort of forget that I was there. And I used to kind of sit and almost hold my breath and think, if I don't say anything, they won't realise I'm still here. And I got to watch an awful lot of stuff that I probably shouldn't have done by just sitting really quietly and saying nothing. Yeah. That's an old trick. Um, what? See, my mum didn't, she didn't mind me watching the, the blood and the gore, but obviously a lot of the old Hammer horror films, uh, they'd have a pair of tits in them. And suddenly, yeah. you know, as soon as the flesh came out, she'd be jumping in front of the telly. Right, time for bed. <laughs> you see mine were the opposite because we used to watch stuff like Benny Hill all the time because my dad really liked Benny Hill but um but yeah when when the gore came on it was like oh time to go to bed <laughs> so okay so your a lot of your books are um on based uh, I feel that based on things that you did when you were younger and they always say don't they write about what you know about so when you were a young ladder, you were a bit of a bad boy as a youngster. So how how much did your bad boy lifestyle um, sort of inspire you when you came to be a writer? Well, it probably did because um, obviously when I first started trying to write, you know, I, I did what every other writer did. And uh, you write, oh, it was a dark and stormy night. And then you make up something about, you know, you. you usually that you've seen on TV three weeks earlier and, and you just emulate and copy. And it, after a while, I don't know, I just, I guess I had a lot of stories from um, those days from um, um, treading on the wrong side of the tracks, should I say. And so, and I had a lot of good stories and a lot of funny stories really. And I think with the, with the burglar diaries in particular, what I wanted to do, what it wasn't, I didn't, you know, every burglar, you know, obviously burglars are scum and, you know, awful and everything, which we know, but I kind of just wanted to be the counterpoint to that and say that, you know, the people in black hats are, you know, they're human as well. And this is their human side. So I'm trying, trying to make, give the human side, but with, with humor, uh, human side of burglars that's a terrible thing to say but uh, you know uh, but I guess I was just you know I grew up also liking stuff like porridge and minder and you know only fools and yeah. horses and you know and petty crime was probably you know 
glamorized to a certain extent. They were quite you know. endearing, weren't they, I suppose? Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess I was trying to, you know, write something in that vein as well. Yeah. Um, I just, oh, it's always that moment where you have a really good question that just flies out of your head. I do that um, <laughs> Oh, Oh, yeah. The thing I was going to ask you was, um, how come you made it into a diary? What made you decide to do that? Oh, it was, um, to be honest, it actually isn't the diary. It's, it's um, there's no diary dates in it. It's more, I guess it, it's, it, you know, it could be called the burglar memoirs or the burglar yeah. recollections or whatever. I just, to be honest, I just thought that, you know, the, the, the title struck me and I thought that the title stood out. The title was better than anything, you know, anything else I could think of really. So um, uh, they were just, each one is kind of, you know, each chapter is just a, is just a, a little Friday night job that one of these guys are going on or, or you know. And yeah. so it was just, they're very episodic. And so it's kind of like, you know, I get, it didn't really have a massive through narrative. There's a, there's a, there's a thin narrative, but it's more episodic and they're like diary entries, I guess. Yeah. And so what made you want to be a writer in the first place? Oh, uh, uh, I, I like reading. I like, I like, you know, I like watching films. I like stories as a structure. I've always liked stories. Um, I just, you know, ever since I was a kid, I was, you know, writing my own comics, making my own comics, writing stories at school and getting a laugh from them and, you know, or not as more often the case was be. Um, <laughs> It was just something I don't know. It's just something I was really drawn to. Any, any, anything I could ever think of, you know, doing, I'd always come back to yeah. Because if I did that, I could write about that, and you know. And so I always sort of came back to that. I always thought it's you know, it was the best job in the world. Yeah, and um, and so you enrolled in an access course. Is that right? To do well, I left. I unfortunately I spent so long writing my silly stories at school. I I, did, I left with no qualifications, so I spent a number of years on the building sites and you know I was the only hod carrier with a thesaurus <laughs> and um but yeah I was just I was just you know going nowhere fast and I, I just thought actually you know I wanted to give education a second crack and there's um you know there's an old adage about you know money is wasted on the young and education's wasted on the old um no it's the other way around isn't it it's, it's money is wasted on the old and education's wasted on the young yeah yeah that makes more sense um <laughs> and um and I just and, and when I went back to it well you know I was 23 and I, I enrolled as an adult as a as a as a mature student uh I just I just threw myself at it in a way that I, I didn't when I was a kid when I was at when I had the chance to do it for free you know I wasn't engaged whereas second time around I was the first one handed in my assignments I was I was the one listening in class I was the one taking notes I was I was you know I was the I was the one finishing his 10-week project in eight eight weeks you know yeah. that sort of stuff so you know um not always with the best grace but I was always the first <laughs> I was <laughs> enthusiastic so I you know I really enjoyed it actually well, you realise, I suppose, when you're older, you realise what there is to lose. Because I, I did a similar thing. I, um, I didn't do anything in my O levels at all. I came out with my English O level a year early because 
I somehow managed to be the best at English in my whole year, but be at the bottom because they used to grade you. And there were 70 children in the year. I remember one year I came first to English out of 70, but overall I came 69th out of 70. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Who I was just, below you? You what? Who was below you? I can't remember now. I should remember. You um, married him. um but the thing was that um I left school I just I think in the actual year of my O-levels I just got my art and then I stayed on for an extra year to retake loads and fail them anyway I ended up going to art college by the skin of my teeth and then ended up doing nothing at all um and went back I did an access course when I was 26 and I was the same as you I was like right come on this is it now I can't waste any more time and then through that I went to university um uh, with all these sort of 18 year olds and I was like why are you all faffing about so much come on you've got to do this now but yeah I didn't do it the first time either well I think you've got to be you know to wait I think you've got to be stuck in a in a in a crummy dead-end job for a while to sort of appreciate your chances yeah yeah definitely um right so my next question is um this is probably an inevitable question so you can gloss over it as much as you want you like what I did there gloss um so you worked as an editor on Mayfair magazine how did Uh, that come about uh surprisingly very mundane answer actually I saw an advert in the I was stuck in a dead end another dead end job I specialize in dead end jobs um um and I saw an advert in The Guardian and uh, and it just said, um, assistant wanted for Paul Raymond title, top leading. And he was very, very vague. But I knew yeah. who Paul Raymond was. And I thought, well, to be honest, I just, I'll apply for it. Because even if I get the interview, it'll be a bit of a giggle. It'll be something I can tell the boys down the pub and ha, ha, ha. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I, I did well in the interview. And then they invite you in for a day. They invited me in for a trial day. And... Um, uh, I was first one in, obviously, and um, then I met uh, one of the secretaries called Marion, and bless her heart, she just said, "Look, look, the work takes care of itself. Just be, uh, just be funny and be uh, blokey and be a laugh, uh, <laughs> and, and if they like you, they'll give you a job." So I spent the whole day sort of cracking jokes and being Mister Chuckles and and all of that, and and yeah, I got that. And sure enough, they they offered me the job. First of all, on Club International, and I was a the deputy editor on that for like two and a half years then then I got promoted to Mayfair for a year and it's you know it was it was a fun interesting time it was um you know I've got many stories there as well which I I later used for the pornographer diaries um uh but it was ultimately ultimately it's like every other job it just turns into a job after a while and we all know how much they suck yeah yeah Oh, so did you get to meet any interesting, exciting people while you were working there, or was it really just a desk job? Well, I said desk. I, well, I was most of the time on a desk. Although I did direct quite a few photo shoots. There was, I remember directing one uh, nude lesbian photo shoot on a rooftop overlooking to, um, Leicester Square, and there was a there was an office block next to us, and everyone was at the office just watching. Well, obviously <laughs> they weren't watching me. They were watching the two girls that who were control. I was in control of, and I just thought, 
I am a god for one afternoon, you know, <laughs> everyone envies me, you know, um, but yeah, no, it was fun, it was, it was interesting, and, and actually the girls, they this is surprisingly very unsexy, actually, once you get to know the girls, and uh, you know, everyone's a laugh, and they've all got their own different personalities, and um, it was, you know, I met Joe Guest once as well, I had a few drinks with her, she was, oh, you know, yeah. she, she was a nice girl, um, um but no just um it was just just a job really I've got some yeah. pictures that I well, I, I must burn before my kids find them <laughs> yeah well I suppose if you do anything long enough it just becomes a job like any other and it's just like you stand there you do this you do that it does and we you know we, we used to go to the local pub in in Soho and we were there you know every lunchtime every hour you know every tea time and it was just, um, and in the end, we just we were just living in the pub most of the time, resenting having to go back to the office, despite this office being supposedly the best job in the world. <laughs> um, so then, um, after that, sort of vaguely after that, so um, you then became um, an author of books. And what I was wondering about that is, do you have a writing process? Do you have things that you do or is it kind of organic? No, I, I, I'm very much, um, I'm, I'm a stickler for um, routine. Um, so if I'm writing a book, uh, I, I'll, you know, I drop the kids off. I, we, we have to drop the kids off at school and then come back and then, you know, I'll start work at, as soon as I can, as soon as I sit down, half nine and work through till they you know, I've got to pick the kids up and I try and do a thousand words a day. If I can keep doing a thousand words a day, eventually, you know, you get to 70, 80, 90,000 words. And that's a book. You know, you've only got, yeah. you can write a thousand words a day for, you know, 75 days and you've got a book. It's that easy. And, you know, <laughs> you make it sound easy. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not really, but it's, you know, and, and it, I, what I like to do is I just break it down, you know, 500 words before lunch, 500 words after lunch, you know, 250, yeah. 250 words before I have a mid-morning cup of tea, 250 words afterwards. And it's the same with screenwriting. If I'm writing a, 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 a film script, I just got to do six pages a day, six pages, you know, and, and in three weeks, I've got a 90-page script. Yeah, and, and so... And, Sometimes, Sorry. sometimes you're able to write a little bit more. Sometimes you're able to write. <clears throat> you're not able to write quite as much. And try not to beat yourself up on those days because it will come to you tomorrow. Yeah. And so how much planning do you do? Do you do a lot of planning or do you just sort of, <coughs> does it just come to you? Well, I um, used to, the, the earliest, the earliest books I wrote, just talking about books now, the earliest books I wrote were, I, I planned out every single paragraph and everything in the paragraphs and everything and after a while I found after what I got to about a book three four five I actually found the stuff that I was coming up with spontane spontaneously was better than the stuff I pre-planned mm. and so now I have I prefer just to give myself a loose idea as long as you've got an ending you know where you're heading yeah you know, and you've got a couple of a couple of you know rocks that you're going to trip over on the on your way then um kind of you know as Stephen King says and he knows more than me he says the author is the first 
reader of a story so surprise yourself yeah have you read um i'm sure you have stephen king's book on writing i have yeah that's why i'm quoting it yeah i'm gonna say i've got that as well it's really good it is excellent yeah he's got he's definitely got a career ahead of him mate that guy (laughs) still (laughs) career behind him he's getting on a bit now um although there is one thing in there he constantly quotes this um grammar person called strunk and um i bought strunk's grammar book now it's not for the englishman or woman to read because it's completely american grammar and they disagree or we disagree uh, shall i say (laughs) with what they think is the correct grammar and i just found it's a really tiny little book it's really thin and i literally just shouted all the way through it going no that's wrong yeah yeah i mean there's i've read a few books uh by other writers uh you know on writing tips and there's some there's some great ones out there there's uh, adventures in screenwriting by william goldman i mean that's really good um and there's um there's one called save the cat by um by uh what's his name um by blake snyder that's really good uh and but then then there have been a couple that i've just not got on with there's one that by robert mckee called story which is like you know the quintessential and i just i I really struggled with it and you know i'm i'm more than willing to accept it it could be me not being clever enough to get it but you know i found it very very inaccessible yeah I am. I found because as an aspiring writer, I've sort of read books and listened to a lot of podcasts, actually. Um, and um, I, oh God, I can't remember his name now. So there's no point in me quoting um, the guy who wrote his Dark Materials. Yeah, Philip Pullman. Yeah, yeah. Um, I listened to a lot of podcasts um, with him on, and I thought he had quite some interesting things to say, um, and. Some of them, um, there's um, a subscription that my sister-in-law got and it was kind of um, masterclasses of writing. Um, And Neil Gaiman was really good, actually. I really like his books. Oh, yeah, I've seen those those adverts pop up, you know. Yeah. Uh, I I fancy, you know. They're uh, interesting. I hate spending money, though. (laughs) Well, yeah, but I I mean, you're past that now. As As a person who's just aspiring to be a writer, I'm... I'm no, trying Jenny, to sort of... you, you can never stop learning. That's the point. Yeah. Um, so the question that everybody always asks every single author, and you can probably even guess what I'm going to say is, where, where do you get, get your ideas ideas from? from? <laughs> uh, I don't know. You just get them from everywhere. Get them anywhere. Get them from everywhere. Uh, you know, um, sometimes it'll be a newspaper article. Sometimes it'll be um, something. Quite often it'll be something that you've always wondered. You know, the, you think, you know, how does that work? Or, you know, for example, it'll be, oh, I don't even know where to start. Yeah. You know. Um, oh, the what if, what would happen if, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, I, stuff, you know, little scenarios and stuff like that. I mean, I I, I read um, I read a story recently about, um, um, uh, one, this old fisherman who who was one of the very first people to spot the Loch Ness monster and you know and and he spent years and spent years trying to capture it you know and and 
he's kind of really, he's been forgotten by history and he, he sort of he met a he met a mysterious end his boat was found on upturned on the water and he was found drowned that was an expert fisherman knew knew the Loch Ness you know and his, his boat was bashed to bits and you know there's a great story there you know um yeah. so uh so it's it, you know sometimes you think well that that would that would be brilliant you know to to adapt and either for a novel or for a film or something like that, that you know yeah. um but yeah just anyway you, you read the news or or you just sit you know i'm a great daydreamer i daydream all the time i wander around in a great you know i i don't notice people when they when they walk past me and say hello because i just you know often i've got my head in the clouds so you know from everywhere i'd say yeah um i always find that the hardest bit is the plot um so i i can do characters i can make up characters till the cows come home's um, as you know, I'm, I'm a primary teacher, so I have to do quite a lot of examples on the boards and things. Characters, I love making up characters, love making up settings, plots. I yeah. just every plot I ever think up, I just think, oh, that's rubbish. Oh, that's boring. Yeah. Well, generally, I find what I, what I do and what a lot of people do is you start, you think up a beginning, and you think up an end, and then the hard bit is then the middle. Because that's all the fun. That's how do they get there, and all, you know. So as long as you know where you're going, you you know how it all started. But then you've got you've got to you've got to not just take a quite a direct path. It's got to you know you've got to weave and you know twist and turns. Yeah, twist and turn through a minefield and through various uh, obstacles, and it's all got to make sense. And you know, but actually, you know, it, I find like a bit a bit like everything. If you can just you know, sometimes if I'm thinking out a plot, I, you know, I'll spend like five days or whatever. And if you can just think up one, come up with one good idea a day, then, you know, after five days, you've got five good ideas. And if they can all fit together, then even better, you know. Yeah. So I think, I think the secret is not putting the pressure on yourself and trying to rush it and panicking. Oh God, oh God, I don't know what's happening, you know. Yeah. Yeah, right. I'll try and take that on board whenever hey. whenever I start. I've been starting to write this book for 10 years now. So hopefully one day I might actually start it. Well, then you are <laughs> taking your time. You're doing exactly the right thing. I'm taking too much time. <laughs> um, so I'm intrigued to know when when you have when you've written a book um, or a story, how does that then what happens in the process between it getting from there to being um, a play on stage or film or TV. What what oh, happens? Well, that is well. It's a, it's a different answer for it, whether it's a play or oh, whether okay. it's a film or whether it's a book. Well, it's just you know quite often. Well, that is the thing you know, and and not everything I've written has ended up on you know. I've I've written more than my fair share of stuff that's flopped and and I originally got a uh, you know a publisher, and and usually if you're in with a publisher and your books are selling well, then the publisher will come back and they'll want another one and they want another one. And it's the day, it's the, it's the first day that your book doesn't sell well. Then they go, thanks very much. Uh, good luck with the rest of your career. And that has happened to me. And, and, you know, and then it's really hard. Then you're back on square one, finding yeah. another publisher again. And quite often you find that that's even harder than finding a publisher in the first place because you've got that little whiff of failure about you and everyone's looking for no one's looking for to give someone a second chance people prefer to find the young fresh 
new voice who's never been heard. And so you, you see it this way, you see a lot of writing competitions are all, you know, only eligible to, you know, under 20 buyers or no, people who have not had any books published or, you know, and also because they're a lot cheaper than us people like me who've had 10 books published and, you know, so, <laughs> um, so that's books. As with films, you write, if you're lucky, you've got an agent. If you're really lucky, you've got an agent who occasionally lifts, lifts up a phone to you, you know, answers <laughs> the phone. Um, and if you're really lucky, you've got an agent who, who sends your scripts out. Most agents, you know, don't. Um, but the ideal scenario is, is along the way, you you meet people, you meet you meet you know contacts, you meet producers, and you take their numbers, and they say, oh, if ever you got anything, you know, give me a call, and you know, you keep them in their name in a little black book. And so every time I write something, I will fire it out to you know, I've got about ten people in my little black book but I'll fire it out to these 10 people and quite often, more often than not, they'll reject it or occasionally they go, yeah, actually, you know, once in a while they'll go, yeah, actually, you know what, I know a guy who's, or a girl who's looking for something like this and and then you can make another little contact in your little black book and it's it's a slow and laborious process and, um, and you know, I've, I've written 20 films in my life and I've only ever had two made you know so it's it's it you know more often than not 90 percent of your output will go nowhere or at least 90 percent of my output goes nowhere anyway <laughs> you know I'm sure I'm sure Neil Gaiman's doing slightly better than me oh I don't know <laughs> yeah yeah but you know I guess the the ideal scenario is you write a big hit and it's it and 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 it makes loads of money and it wins loads of awards and suddenly you're flavoring a month and then then people are knocking on your door rather than the other way around yeah but you know I'll, I'll let you know i'll come back on if that ever happens i'm sure it will so in the beginning though when you um thought that you were made when serpent's tale agreed to publish your book um you were sort of gutted when you realized that you had to go to work the next day and continue working for a while. How long did it take for you to be able to ditch the regular job and be a writer full time? The secret was uh, I'm quite a few years actually, and it was it was a constant source of annoyance because I wasn't getting paid very much for my books, and and occasionally they get optioned by filmmakers, and I kept on hoping that they one would be made into a film and give me this this you know. I quit work amount of money and it never did. But what happened was is that the BBC came after about four, five years, the BBC uh, optioned the burglar diaries and they um, wanted to turn it into a sitcom. Unfortunately, they couldn't find any, any sitcom writers who were willing to adapt the story because they thought it was too scummy, too scuzzy, no one with any moral character would do that and I said I'll do it I'll do it please let me do it <laughs> and so they they asked me to submit a couple of sample scripts and I'm based on that they gave me the job and then I wrote a, a pilot and then it was performed in the BBC and based on the back of that um and it, you know then it, it was performed in a room at the BBC in front of about 10 people and based on that um and how and the reaction to that it was then commissioned for the full six episodes and that's when I knew it was going ahead and that's when the contract lands on my desk 
think uh, freeing me up from work finally so I can concentrate on writing sitcom scripts rather than um, rather than doing a day job and that that it was really only then about 2006 I finally to end of 2005 I was finally able to quit work and I, w- I went full-time and it was great and I, I you know I loved it and I you know I feel very very incredibly lucky that you know to have written Thieves Like Us and to have seen it happen and you know it wasn't a success unfortunately we didn't didn't get a second series or you know or lead on to anything you know I, I specialize in stuff that flops <laughs> but um but don't no, put I, yourself down <laughs> well I you know but it had you know it had a lot of fans but it didn't have enough unfortunately and didn't have any fans right at the top of the BBC and so they sort of uh they uh thanked me profusely and uh don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out you know yeah well some of the best shows end like that it's so annoying because the viewers are going what what I can't believe that that hasn't been commissioned for a second series and you go one hit wonder yeah crazy um so I've been obviously um looking through your um your your past work and one thing that actually popped out to me because I've, I've read quite a lot of reviews and things was that apparently David Baddiel is a fan of your books um, and he's got a quote on blue collar yeah he's got a quote on loads but yeah he actually gave me an award um the first book I my first book Burglar Diaries um it won an award um which is um it's a great big glass brick up there actually on top of my and it, it was for, it was the Amazon Bursary Prize. And uh, it was like best first novel. Oh um, yes, 2002, yeah. Yes, and um, he was one of the judges. And so I got yeah. to meet him and he was a lovely fellow and we had a nice chat and, you know, I thought, oh, this is brilliant. This is the start of big things for me, but, you know. But he, he was a nice guy and uh, interesting as well. And um so yeah so he gave he gave that quote and of course when you've got a quote like that you just you just slap it on everything you do oh yeah I mean why why can't you you know (laughs) you know he's spinning in his grave now even though he's not dead yet but you know (laughs) I use it one more time I think he's gonna gonna come around and stick one on me so um when I um read the the kind of blurb for blue collar um it did jump out at me and I wanted to ask you was it at all autobiographical yes well again it's 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 blue collars on the building site and I've I've worked on a building sites for seven years and um and obviously I've got my my wife's slightly middle class and and in in blue collar (laughs) yeah but actually blue collar was um was written because my then agent was urging me to write rom-coms to get away from you know um crime comedy crime and to get into rom-coms she said that's where the money is this was you know 15 years ago when rom-coms were successful and um chiclet that was it chiclet and um so i wrote it and it was my attempt at chiclet but it just uh, no it, it, it um unfortunately <laughs> unfortunately it didn't happen and uh so it um that was the last book I wrote for Serpent's Tale. But yeah, no, I enjoyed it. I got a prize for it again. I got I got I nominated in, in this chiclet award category. Um, 
but yeah, no, it was, it was obviously there's a lot of autobiographical biographical elements in it, but um, uh, a bit like everything. I mean, there's autobiographical elements in my werewolf stories. It doesn't mean you know I'm a werewolf. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna go on to um, so you've written quite a lot of genres in in your screenplays and in your books. Um, so what made you dive into horror then with Eat Locals? I think that was my first love. It was always my first love. In fact, my, my the very first, well, Eat Locals in particular was, um, I wrote it ooh, uh, 15 years ago as a screenplay. And the reason I wrote it as a screenplay, uh, the idea came because someone said to me, look, if you want to get a film made, write a cheap film, you know, write a, write a low budget film, low budget film. And I, and because, you know, the, the, the less money the producers have to raise, the more likelihood it is to get made. Yeah. And so I thought, yeah, of course, well, that makes perfect sense, of course. And so um, often a lot of these horror films set in a deep, dark woods, uh, uh, in abandoned warehouses, uh, uh, farmhouses and stuff, they're, they're set in these places because these places are very cheap places to film. <laughs> because filming in the middle of a town, filming in the middle of a city or in, in you know, or anywhere where there's people, that's expensive. But filming in, a, in the middle of the woods, near, you know, with a skeleton crew, that's very cheap. So I just had to come up with a scenario. And I, I like siege movies. And it also means that no one can move. No one can move away from your cheap location. <laughs> um, but I always quite like, I quite like to reverse it. So I thought this time I'll have the vampires on the inside. I'll have the monsters on the inside and the humans on the outside rather than, you know, the, other way around, the way yeah. it's always been. And, and I just sort of, you know, I'm more, I'm more, I, I always prefer uh, the antagonists over the protagonists anyway, you know. <laughs> And did you get to hang out on the set at all, or were you completely separate from the film? No, I did. I did. I was there. I was there uh, at least half the filming. Freezing cold. It was January, about five years ago. It was. It was really cold January. In fact, there's one scene with Mackenzie Crook where he, he's he's de delivering his lines. It's like two o'clock in the morning, and you can see his jaw is actually frozen, and he's, he's hardly got any milk movement in his mouth because he's. He's so cold. And um, I was a complete wuss. I was, you know, I was, I never ventured very far away from the fire, but all the actors, they're all, it's funny, you think, oh, what a pampered lot they are, but actually they're, they're out, standing out there in the, it was freezing. It was so bitter. It was so bitter. And it's like that freezing fog. Um, but it was lovely. And, and it, you know, it was a really nice experience. Everyone was, everyone was happy. No one was backbiting. Everyone was, you know, Everyone was just doing it because they were kind of enjoying it, and and everyone got on. It was it was nice. I still get I still get messages from people um, who were on that shoot, and you know it was a lovely experience. Oh, that's really good. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Did you? So you made the you wrote the screenplay for that. So I guess yes. nobody came along and stuck their sticky fingers into your script. But does that happen oh, well, a lot no, it, with books and things? Or? Well, well, no, they did because, uh, I mean, the, the screenplay, it's never the, you know, that, that would have been the 20th draft at least because the, especially with a screenplay, you know, you even though I'm the only name on there, 
what you what you happen to get is you, you you sit down with the producer and the producer says well i like this bit but i don't like that bit or this bit works i don't get that bit or instead of you know um instead of him as the villain can he be the villain or or you know and and so you get what's called notes and you get a great big load of notes which is suggestions and can you do this can you do and so you have to and it, actually the, the hardest bit of screenwriting is writing to notes is is accommodating and you can't just say no 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 i'm a genius no you can all bugger off you know because then it's a collaborative process and people will think well okay if, you, if you're just telling us all to bugger off we, we will we'll go and make a different film then so you've got to kind of accommodate you know you've got to and also it does you've got to listen to other people you've got to maybe think that you don't have all of the answers and actually, you know, there's some some lovely ideas in there that uh, Jason came up with and some of the cast came up with. And, and you know, I'm happy to take the credit for the, all the ones that all the, all the good ideas and, you know, take the flack for the bad ones. You know, so, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's lots of it, it's an amalgamating process. And, you know, it's um, yeah, it's. Uh, I've completely forgot what the question you have was. to be quite humble if you get if your people are messing around with your script i suppose <laughs> well i guess the uh, yes well you do and you I, oh, do I you fight are there you, bits that you fight for yes there are you've got to have a you've got to have a thick skin i tell you, the bit that i the bit that i fought for all the way through was that i ne at no point did i want sebastian he's the human to to pick up a gun and be a hero you know, he's like, it wasn't his job to be, to be, spoiler alert, to, to you know, to, to be the James Bond hero or vampire killer of the thing. It was his yeah. job to run around like a headless chicken and somehow survive when no one else did. You know, and that was that, you know, and so that was the bit that I fought for, you know, and, and, and got in the end. You know. Oh, that's that's really good. And so, um, coming on to Wild Bill, um, which was a film that won the Writers Guild of Great Britain Award for the best first feature film in two thousand and twelve. Um, so you had um, Dexter Fletcher on there, didn't you? And Jason yes. Fleming. Yeah. Um, and apparently Jason Statham turned up for a bit of directing. Is that right? He did. He did. There's a no, no, Jason. That's that's on Eat Locals. Oh, was that on Eat Locals? Yeah, right. yeah. In uh, in Eat Locals, there's a there's a fight scene in a barn um, with a, a, a character called Chen, and um, that was directed by Jason Statham. He came along because he's a friend of Jason Fleming, and he said, "Look, yeah." He, he said, "Look, I I will help you choreograph." The fight scene and so he did he, he came down he not only choreographed he you know uh, lucas who played chen he trained him up and choreographed the stage fight that he he then had a they had a a second camera unit which he then uh, was directing and so it's nice you know i got got to shake his hand briefly and say hello you know and 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 that was it was the first time a local and also nick moran turned up for a, a little cameo as a soldier. And Eat Locals is the first film that Jason Statham, Jason Fleming, Dexter Fletcher and Nick Moran have all appeared in. All the four Lockstock boys have appeared in together or at oh, least wow. worked on together. That's fantastic. It's brilliant when people turn up who just 
happen to be friends and what what's the story well, with the food with Jamie Oliver as well yeah Jamie Oliver's um Jamie Oliver Dexter and Jason are friends with Jamie Oliver uh, you know they're just away from you know showbiz and everything they're just friends with him and so Jamie had been offering to do the catering for for a long time I think you know Jason went to several catering companies who do film catering with a budget and said, look, you know, what can you give me? And it was all sort of, yeah, we can give you sausage and chips, sausage and chips for, you know, five pound a head and all of that. And Jamie Oliver said, well, look, give us a budget. It was like five pound a head per person. For, and he was saying, well, I can do, you know, this, this lovely curry that night and then this, this terrine that night. And, you know, and so he, although he never came along himself, he's, he sent his little minions along, you know, <laughs> but they, they did, they, they catered and, and Funnily enough, everyone on the film set, maybe this is why everyone was so happy. They said it was the best food they'd ever had on a film set. <laughs> yeah, it sounds good. I remember when I, I did some extra work um, after drama school and um, and it was, I have to say, it was exactly like Ricky Gervais's extras programme. It was so like it. I actually cried laughing when I watched it. Uh, because you'd have this really rubbish food, you'd be sat on a bus, and then you'd have all these old lovies telling you about all the people they'd ever worked with, <laughs> and it was just the same. But yeah, the food was terrible. Yeah, yeah. Well, the food was <laughs> lovely on Eat Locals, I tell you. Brilliant. <laughs> now, one of the most recent things you've done is written books about the adventures of Amy X. Tell ah, well, us about Amy X. Well, um, I wanted to, I wanted to have, obviously have, having children, it, you know, inevitably gets you and you think, actually, I want to write a children's story. And so I wrote, a, I wrote a children's novel called Amy X and the Great Race. And originally I, I, was, I was trying to write it in a sort of, as a, as a proverb, not so much a proverb, but as a parallel, you know, she lives on a little island called Pompolonia. It's a little microcosm, a microcosm that reflects how society is. And, it, yeah. you know, then you got the poor at the bottom and the, the rich at the top. And, and you know, and, and you can, you can, I send her on all sorts of, you know, wonderful adventures. And um, funnily enough, I, so I, I wrote it and I sent it into a, a competition. I, I won the competition with it, the Wells Festival of, uh, Wells Literature Festival Prize, and the prize was presented me, to me by then the Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Cornwall, who's now the Queen Consort. So, oh, wow. I, I thought, yeah, look, if you see on my wall back here, look, you and Camilla, yeah, Camilla. So I've got, I've got, I'm by royal appointment, yeah. And then the book subsequently got published in Germany, um, and uh, and. I couldn't find a publisher, but I, I, the wonderful thing about Amazon is you're able to put stuff out yourself. If you if if you can't find a publisher, you know, you can just still put them out and put them, make them available as eBooks and as paperbacks on on um, on um, uh, Amazon. And what I also did oh, the quite nice thing is. Um, I designed the covers myself, and that's oh, wow. uh, that's Frankie. Oh, so look, I've got fantastic. you know, I've got Frankie as a, as my model for for the day, 
So oh, wow, that's amazing. Last one, there you go. Wow. And she's that's like, brilliant. you know, she's moaning the whole time, but I bought her some sweets. And I said, <laughs> one day, you know, one day you can show your own kids these, you know. And so, you know, it was a nice thing to do. So how do you how do you manage to juggle having four children and writing? Oh, well, I don't do anything in the summer holiday, I can tell you. All the, all the, all the half term or Christmas. The only time, the only way I can do it is when they're at school. Um, yeah. And and I get, you know, six hours. So this is why, you know, this is why I curse you teachers in inset days. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, so I pack them off to school. I quickly rush home. And I think this is why, you know, where the discipline comes in, because I know I've only got a small time window and I've got to fit in, you know, I've got to hang up the washing and hang up my socks as well and all everything else and um, answer the phone, call, you know, feel the phone calls and, you know, do all the 101 other things that everyone's got to do all the time. So yeah, I've got, you know, I just need to crack on really. But I'm quite lucky yeah. at the moment. I'm I'm working on. I found a I found a a partner to to bounce ideas off and work with. He's a he's a film director, and we're so we're working together. So we spend most of our days on Zoom meetings and you know discussing ideas and and putting together scripts and stuff. And that's that's been really good. Yeah, I guess it, it makes it easier, doesn't it? Somehow when you've got somebody to talk to and bounce ideas off. It is. It's something I've never had. I've never. I've. I've always worked on my own, you know. Um, probably for a reason. But. Um, but yeah, it's. It's nice to have uh, a sounding board and someone who can, you know, uh, someone who can before you before you write it can say to you, actually, that's a rubbish idea. Come up with something better. So it's quite <laughs> nice when you know someone, you know, someone pushes you like that because the first yeah. idea isn't always the best one that you come up with. Yeah. So if you were going to sort of advise somebody who wants to write their first book, I know I read in one of your um, interviews that you were saying that sort of back in the day, you could just write a book and then send off a few chapters to lots of publishing houses, which is what yeah. you did originally. But these days you have to have an agent first. So what advice would you give to any aspiring writer? Oh, well, yeah, all the publishing companies, you know, when I first started, would you could you could just send unsolicited manuscripts. That's what they're called, you know, and they'd, they'd have they'd have an office junior there to, to open them all up and answer them. And you'd get an answer eventually. But they they've stopped doing that now. And and so you've got to get an agent. But it's even harder getting an agent than it is getting a publisher so it's, it's almost a catch-22 situation but what most agents now are looking for uh is someone with a social media following so everyone's if you if you're lucky enough to you know to have fifty thousand people following you on youtube or or tiktok or or, or twitter or something like that then then you know more people are going to pick up the phone to you than than not and so but, you know, obviously it's it's not that easy because, you know, we've all tried. I've tried. No one wants to follow me. You know, no, even my kids don't <laughs> want to follow me, you know. So, um, and so, you know, it's hard to get it's hard to build up a social media. If you can get social media following, then then that is a um, that is a fast route to getting noticed. Yeah. Um, 
if you can't, then, you know, perseverance um, and you've got to make sure that you sh you're not doing it just to get the rewards at the end. You're doing it because you like doing it. If you hate writing, if, if it's the worst thing in the world to you, if it's just awful and just, you know, but you're doing it just because you want to, you want fame and fortune, you know, there are easier ways to get fame and fortune. Get into writing because you like writing, because you like sitting down. You, you enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, I actually enjoy writing. And it's a bonus when I can sell something, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know um, and I don't always sell it, you know. I'm, and you, you go for a hot streak and you go for a cold streak. And cold streaks always last longer than the hot streaks, I can tell you. But just make sure you enjoy it first. That's good advice, I think. And so what's in the pipeline next for you? Are you going to do more horror films, more Amy X, something completely different? What's the plan? Well, the plan is at the moment I've got uh, I've got about six projects, six film projects. I'm concentrating mostly on film at the moment because um, I find I'm finding I'm having better, better luck there than with the books at the moment. So um, yeah. the, book, the books will take care of themselves and also Oh, books take about a year to write a script only takes like you know a month so it's just a it's just slightly to turn know. over <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely so I've got a zombie film in the works um called Memorial that's with a film company they've they've got a it's not really zombies it's I don't know you know <laughs> monster, you know monsters um and that's got a that's got a Brazilian actress is just uh uh um signed up to appear in that um, um, and uh, quite a famous person don't ask me her name because I need to quickly look it up um, <laughs> and um, so that's I mean you know that's that's got a bit of promise I've got um, I've written another film called He Who Would Valiant Be and that's something I'm working on with Simon and that's about um, a vicar referee in a chess match between God and the devil Ooh, um, a bit What's it called? Um, Good Omensy. Yeah, something. Yes, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I guess there's, there's, you know, something along those lines. Um, and, and, and that's currently out to casting. So we're going out to a lot of, lot of actors to try and, you know, if we can snag one, we've got, you know, we've got, um, we've got a bit of film interest from, we've got a bit of interest from a film company, and they're just saying, look, who, who have you got? Who have you got? You, you know, so you need to, you need to try and find you know, a big worthy actor to agree to join, you know, to, 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 to sign up. I mean, if I say, if I say, well, me, they'll go, no, thank you. So you need, you need to say, <laughs> come back and go, uh, we've got, we've got Michaela Ford lined up. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah, she's yeah. there. She said, she, she said she'll do it. <laughs> yes. Yes. We'd love to cast you, but the film, you know, nobody I'm, knows I'm, who you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure we would uh, raise the money for the food budget, but, um, yeah, so we've got to try though. You've got to try. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's, we've got these things in the. It's just waiting to see if it happens. I mean, it might not. They might not happen. It might not come off. But you know, there's wheels. You know, um, there are wheels turning, but they they turn very, very, very slowly in the film industry. Yeah, and I suppose they just keep you on the edge of your seat all the time. I suppose you have to put it to your back at the back of your mind yeah. in some ways. Otherwise, it's, you're just what it is, it's, disappointed. It's it, it's not so much the 
it's the hope that kills you more than anything. You know, if, if I could just, if everything could just flatline, everything could just end, I think, okay, brilliant. Now I'll just go and get that job at Tesco's. But it's, it's, it's that constant thinking, well, this might come off. This, this might just be the one. This might, this might actually happen, you know. Yeah, um, I have to say, just really short, um, many years ago, I um, did a small investment in Bitcoin. And um, somebody has obviously discovered that I made this investment and that I never did anything with it. It was still in, in this company, which apparently then went bankrupt. Anyway, somebody got all this information and recently um, phoned me up and he knew so much about it that he really had me thinking that my 0 0.84 Bitcoin was still available um, mm. and it was worth like £16,000 yeah. and he was going to help me get it out. Anyway, it went on and on and on, and um, it, it became apparent that um, that I think what was going to happen was I think the Bitcoin's probably there in the ether somewhere, but he was hoping to kind of um, scam me into him getting it out somehow. Yeah. Anyway, um, the short version is that I I kind of realised that he was trying to scam me. Yeah. And the only thing I could think to call him was a hope stealer. I said, for the past week, you have got my hopes up and you've just shot them down in pieces. You are a hope stealer. And that is worse than being a thief because yeah. I had the hope that, you know, our money problems for the short term future were over and that we were going to have this lump sum of money. Um, and that hope that you've dashed is worse than any stealing that anyone could have ever done. But it's exactly. right. Because it? you, you, you'd let it go. You, you'd given up on it, you know. Yeah. You know, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do feel for you. But uh, I do promise you, I can get you that if you just give me your bank details. <laughs> <laughs> right, hang on, where's my card? <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Danny. It's been really cool talking to you um, and really interesting. And um, I hope that we can um, have a chat at a later date. Oh, yeah. About this well, I'll podcast. let you know if anything happens. I'll let you know why it all went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> there is an air of the pessimist about you, I have to say. <laughs> Well, then somebody I, who's done so it well. Out, it turns out that I'm pleasantly surprised when it when it all goes right. Yeah, it's uh, better. As, it's better than my, having your hopes stolen. Exactly, as my best friend Joe says, I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, thanks so much, Michaela. That's all right. Thank you, and um, I'll let you know when the podcast is out, and hopefully you can tout it to all your friends. And we'll, we'll get a few listeners. I'm sure they'll both be interested. <laughs> <laughs> Don't um, say that, because I'm going to tout it to both my listeners. And then yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. have four between us. <laughs> or one of my friends, though. <laughs> Bye. All right, then. Take care. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much, Danny. That was a fantastic interview. Don't forget, everybody, if you want to tell me your paranormal stories, you need to email them in to me at paranormalorwhatpodcast at outlook.com. 
Don't forget to rate and review the podcast as well on all the good podcast apps. We want to get some more listeners. And also, if you're in the mood, you could tell your story and send it to me on an audio file. You can send it to the email address or you can send it to me at anchor.fm forward slash paranormal or what podcast forward slash message. Okay, until next week, stay spooky everybody and remember, together we can figure it out. Night. <laughs>